Hello and welcome back to Full Dusty Jacket, a literary podcast for gentlemen. My name is Sam and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and friend, Sean. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Sam. I'm excited. We've got a lot of firsts with uh, the book we're covering today. Yeah, so to fill you guys back uh, in on what we're doing today, today's uh, novel is Sean's Choice and it's called Hard Rain Falling by Don Carpenter, not to be confused with uh, horror master Carpenter. What was that guy's name? John Carpenter. John Carpenter, excuse me. All right, so when you recommended this book to me, I got to admit, it, it took me a little while to get into it because this is, would you call this a noir? Is this, Does this count as a noir novel? I would put it as noir adjacent, like a lot. Yeah. It's, it's a very, very heavy psychological book, which noirs typically aren't. Um, you know, you got like Dashiell Hammett and Chandler. They're more like uh, detectives trying to solve a case on something here. Where in this book, it doesn't have kind of a central plot really to it. Um, it's described as a crime novel, but I also really wouldn't call it that either. What do you think you would put under? Yeah, yeah, me either. In fact, what I'll say is what it shares with noir, uh, the noir category, is that it's extremely grim. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean grim in that it's violent. I just mean it's outlook. In fact, it's so grim and brutal in its, um, you could call it existentialism or nihilism, although I don't think it's actually either. I've tried to do as much reading on this book as possible. But initially, for me, uh, getting through this book was kind of slow going because it was just, it had such a harsh outlook on everything. Mm Mm-hmm. And then by the last third of the book, I was just completely enraptured. Um, I haven't read something with that much clarity psychologically and emotionally in a long time. Um, I did a ton of reading on this book, anything I could find afterwards. Um, it was released in the 60s, and it actually it didn't get that much traction, apparently, when it was released. Um, and in fact, there's so much really hardcore stuff in this book, I'm not surprised as to why. I I don't know if this type of um, story would have been really welcomed in a climate, uh, social climate as conservative as the 60s. I know you might think of, hey, the freewheeling hippies and all that, but at the end of the day, I mean, this book deals with all sorts of stuff. Rape, abuse, the social justice system, homosexuality. I mean, all sorts of stuff. You just, you know, I watched tons of movies from the 60s and and you don't find these kinds of themes by themselves in movies, let alone uh, combined together. Um, so initially, I had a hard time getting through it. But then by the end, I was just completely absorbed. Um, let's just recount a little bit of the plot here. Uh, this book takes place, for starters, in Oregon. Um, it's about a young orphan named Jack. Uh, in fact, the first couple chapters of the book deal with his parents, and their story is just as grim as everything else in the book, where... His mother is this young girl who gets impregnated by this older guy, and he ends up getting kicked to death in the head by a horse on a ranch he's working on, and then she blows her brains out, uh, and then Jack is sent to the orphanage. And the book basically follows Jack in what you could call his misadventures through um, Oregon and then San Francisco. But, and, you know, some of the cast of char- and, and and with some of the cast of characters he meets along the way. But the truth is that they're not really adventures, and it's not following Jack through his misadventures. What it really is doing is that it's following Jack through his emotional awakening in life. And that's not to say he has any great singular epiphany, but what you're watching is a guy who 
has suffered a ton of emotional trauma in his childhood who is incrementally becoming more aware of that fact, more aware of his trauma, of his limitations, and constantly reevaluating his life, but he's not doing it in some highfalutin way. I mean, this book deals with, uh, pardon if I sound class, classist here, but the lowliest of the low people in society. Uh, Sean, what's your view, overall view on the story in this book? It follows Jack through, I would say, three main phases of what I think you rightly call like his emotional uh, maturing. It starts off in the beginning when he's a like a street punk, and all he really cares about is getting money so he can get, in his mind, the finer things in life being like whiskey and women. And I think a boat at one point. He wants to get a boat. And you see that he's completely aimless because he was raised without ever knowing his parents. In the prologue where you meet his parents who are these kind of runaway drifters. The the father turns out to be an alcoholic. The mother wants nothing to do with the father or Jack and then tragically ends her own life. And so that's the situation this young man's dropped into. All he knows is that he doesn't want to go back into, uh, well, I guess it would be an orphanage or the boys' reformatory school uh, because that's where the initial abuse starts taking place. And so you meet him when he, I think he's 17, 16, 17, and he's just adrift. Uh, he's locked out of his uh, motel room. He has no money. And as the story goes along and you jump to the next phase and you see he gets some more pieces to answer, you know, kind of what actually motivates him. But yeah, and this is mainly a story about the outcasts. Uh, there's three kind of main characters, and that's Jack himself. And then you meet his like fast-talking Irish partner in crime named Denny. And Denny is the one that kind of gets Jack into a situation that we'll, we'll talk about in a second. And then the last character that's important is Billy. And uh, when Billy arrives in the Portland pool hall scene, that's kind of where the book really kicks off and gets going plot wise i think yeah and it's also really important to mention um that billy is black and i know that seems like an incidental thing to mention but it's not in regards to this book because the casual racism that flies around this book is extreme and mm -hmm. the author i believe is white yeah and i don't think I don't think he could get away with it today, even though his book is anti-racist. But I think the amount of times, it's kind of it's almost kind of like how people criticize Huckleberry Finn for its use of the N-word, mm -hmm. even, though, even though Huckleberry starts out as a racist and ends up not as one. And I don't know how you accurately portray that journey without accurately portraying how racist people act and how they talk. Um, but yeah, Billy is a guy, you know, a big part of this book, in my opinion— is all three of these guys, but mainly Jack and Billy, being hyper-aware of how society sees them. Um, Jack being a, a young, tough, punk orphan who's in and out of the penal system, and Billy just being a black guy, and them constantly trying 
to overcome the limitations that society places on them. There's there's a very low ceiling for each of them that's really hard for them to bust through. And a big part of this is psychologically, how do you strive to achieve and break out of the parameters that society puts around you when they classify you as a very specific type of person? And to be honest, this book doesn't have the answers for that. Uh, this book does not suggest that if society sees you you know, as black and lesser than that you can somehow overcome society's um, prejudices against you. And it also doesn't suggest that if you are uh, someone who is an orphan and, and unloved and in and out of the penal system and the juvenile system, that somehow you can turn into a fully functioning adult uh, capable of having a family and holding down a good job and suppressing some of the instincts that have been socialized into you. Uh, if anything, this book is really saying that these people are victims of society and that there's no overcoming it and that whatever uh, silver lining they, that there is in all this is internal. It's, it's within themselves and their, you could call it acceptance of their, of their mm-hmm. place in life or the small joys that they're able to find. But really, at the end of the day, they are victims of society. This is not the tale of people... Uh, you know, picking themselves up by them by their bootstraps and making it in America. If anything, this book is the opposite. And in fact, the author was interviewed and he said that he's an atheist. He doesn't believe that there's anything after this and that he does view his book optimistic only in the sense that whatever meaning you get out of life, you have to make it yourself. It's internal and it's a choice. And his characters are constantly confronted with this fact that any meaning that can... Uh, that can be that can amount to their very small lives is something that they have to internally come to. And I know all this sounds like highfalutin uh, gentleman's literature stuff, mm-hmm. but the truth is it's not. This book, the prose is as clear um, and easy to easy to digest as a uh, I don't know as a Dan Brown novel. It's certainly light years ahead of a Dan Brown novel. But the author said. Uh, when he wrote this book, that he wanted to write it for the masses. He wanted the everyman to be able to read this, which is good because the book's about the everyman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the the writing style and the prose on this, I wouldn't call it like beautiful or pretty, but to me, it's a real masterful example of not wasting any words on the page. Everything that's said and written in this book has a clear and definite purpose. It's kind of like watching a like a beautiful piece of furniture being assembled where everything <laughs> is just right and cut to perfection and you don't there's you get the books I don't want to say it's philosophy because what the strength of the book is is that it does ask these hard questions about how to connect with society that's actively rejecting you How do you make your own meaning and happiness in this world when it's constantly got its foot on your throat? It asks a bunch of questions, but it doesn't presume to give you the answers. Carpenter clearly has to work, is working through a lot himself, I think, through this book, where he's exercising his own demons. Yeah, the writing style... I kind of attribute it to it's like some of the larger uh, emotional revelations. It's like being smashed on the head with a hammer where it's swift and brutal. But not only that, 
the ache of it lasts to constantly remind you of what it was like getting smashed on the head with the hammer. Mm -hmm. So this is one of these books where I really think that I would benefit from reading it again. Uh, I have this theory, Sean, and it mainly applies to movies, but I'm realizing it applies to books too, which is that most people, um, when they consume a story, they're mainly concerned with what happens next. Okay, what happens next? Pure story plot points, right? Mm -hmm. And the problem when you consume a story that way is you don't take in everything that the director, the actor, the writer, uh, the novelist is putting in that scene in that moment for you to digest because you're so concerned with what is happening uh, going forward. And I think this type of book, you know, I'm reading it and I'm in many ways a less trained reader than I am a movie uh, viewer. And as a result, I'm just like, okay, what happens next? What happens next? And then by only by the last third of the book did I really understand and, you know, you said it's not philosophy, but the interesting thing is that Jack, the main character, is a philosopher. Mm. That's the funny thing. The entire book, he is constantly um, philosophizing about his life, but he's doing it in such a way where he's doing it within the box, the, the limitations of his own intellectual capacity. But he's but he is a, he is a philosopher nonetheless. Um, if, if anything, he, that's all he does is evaluate the state of his life, which is really interesting because he's also a guy who is in many ways enslaved to so many uh, baser instincts, such mm -hmm. as fighting and drinking and screwing. And I think a large part of this book is about uh, the id, right? The superego. Um, what, what is our ability to fight our basic nature, right? The, the, the wirings in our brains that cause us to do certain things that uh, shape our personality, whether or not they're biological or socialized. And I think this book would very much indicate that they're socialized. But this character, he is in a constant battle of recognizing his nature and not being able to overcome it. And in fact, I would suggest that is the primary conflict, not only of the book, but all the characters in the book. Mm -hmm. And only some of them are able to make incremental changes uh, to their lives and to fight against their own nature. And many of the characters in this book are not able to. Um, it almost reminds me of The Sopranos because I think that's a large part of what the show The Sopranos was about, which was uh, Tony Soprano was constantly coming to revelations about his life that he was never able to follow through on. And I feel that the Jack character, while he makes forward progress and then you know he, he takes one step forward and two steps back constantly but at the end of the day he's always nudging forward yeah and even the violence that comes to him it's not like he sets out to be a violent person it's almost like watching a switch get flipped on him where something will cause him to snap and he automatically responds with violence uh in the second uh, section of the book you find out that he was a a boxer and he was never very good because all he was was big and angry and I think he kills a guy in the ring and that's what makes him stop boxing uh, to try and make a living it's not that he was wasn't making money and I don't think he necessarily enjoyed doing the violence and especially since he ends up killing somebody and repents over it it's like he just can't help himself. He is always going to be a part of him, be that, you know, scared, wounded orphan that just has to lash out at something. 
Well, I have to disagree with you there only because his character is so emotionally stunted throughout the book that there are many times where his internal dialogue is literally like expressing expressing the sheer joy of violent outbursts. I mean, like, so there's this... There's this sequence in the book, which I think is probably, from what I've read, the most famous sequence in the book, where his character, when he's when he's really in juvenile detention, he's not even an adult yet, mm-hmm. is put in solitary confinement for like 127 days, and man, the writing in this sequence, he is in a he is in a in, a, in literally like I don't know what to put it like a dark room. There's no light, and he's naked, and he's got to defecate into a bucket. And they feed him through a small hole, which is the only light he gets in the day. And the author spends, you know, I listened to the book. I don't know how many pages it must have been. It might have been like, I don't know, like 30 to 40 pages, Sean. You would have a better understanding of it than me. Mm -hmm. Where he is just detailing what is going on through Jack's head. And part of it is part of what's keeping Jack going and not going totally insane is the idea that he's going to murder the first person he sees when he gets out of the hole. I mean, it's just, and, and all throughout the book, there are times when he is just waiting for somebody to um, piss him off or attack him so that he can explode in violent rage. Because in a weird way, that is him at his um, at his most emotionally free. It is it is the way he knows how to express emotion the best. Everything else is stunted emotionally except for that, especially in the in the earlier part of his life where like violence is the release for him. Right. But the the inciting incident that lands him in the hole is that uh he's so just to catch up on the plot, basically oh crap. Uh Jack winds up back in this uh, correction facility for, for youths after breaking into a house with Denny and having a house party and then getting too drunk to get out of the house before the morning and cops pick him up and that lands him in the, in the detention center. And then the guards, one of them is portrayed as kind of like a hick or a hillbilly that his only pleasure in life is to like basically put this these kids through hell. So he calls out uh the boys in Jack's wing or ward, whatever you want to call it, and lines them up and accuses them of I think uh like sodomy or <laughs> masturbation, something like that. And he really starts hammering down on one of the smaller younger guys and that just caused Jack to, you know, go into that machine mode. And he nearly beats this guard to death, and that lands him in the hole. And then while he's in the hole, he loses all sense of time. They don't even feed him regularly enough that he knows how many days have passed. And sometimes when they feed him, they put soap in his food, so he ends up getting debilitating cramps. So just imagine being 17 years old, naked in a pitch black room, shitting yourself, and losing... goes through kind of like a death of the ego. He loses all sense of time, and in doing so, he forgets he has a past, and he can't conceive of a future. He's stuck in the the present constant hell that is him in isolation. And I think that kind of does very long-term damage to him, because he refuses to... He kind of fights against it in the next section of establishing himself in some way like getting a job or having a meaningful relationship so that 
that brutality inflicted on him does kind of fuel his violence. As a matter of fact, the first person he does see is a state senator comes around to look at the boys that are in isolation because one of them dies from appendicitis. And as he's going to take, he when he the senator finds out Jack's been in there for months at this point, he's outraged. He wants Jack to be let out, but Jack immediately starts strangling him. And that ends up, yeah, <laughs> he just comes at the guy and he uh, starts strangling him. He gets thrown back in. And the only reason he gets out of uh, isolation is because it's his 18th birthday and the center can't legally hold on to him anymore. And I think in the only moment of pure humor in this book, well, he, a, a full battalion of guards come down to release Jack because they know he's violent. He has violent tendencies. And they're all standing around, and they got the street jacket ready to strap him in. And when they open the door to his cell, he meekly just kind of trudges out and goes, "My eyes hurt." And he's yeah, he's later on he's he's mad at himself that he was that was the most sane he's been in a long time. He wanted to lash out again. So maybe you are right that he does have these. Uh, he is prone to violence. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things about this book is it shows what type... So there are basically three main characters in the beginning. There's Jack, there's Denny, and there's Billy. Uh, Billy's a black pool hustler, and Denny's kind of like a wisecracking Irish kid who's got all the scams. And the way he's described early in the book, before Jack is sent to juvenile detention, but after he's gotten out of the orphanage he grew up in, is that Denny is kind of like the brightest. And I don't mean the brightest in terms of the most intelligent, but the brightest in terms of his spirit. Uh, Denny is the most joyful of the three of them. Uh, Billy's kind of, Billy's got a talent that Denny and Jack uh, both envy uh, greatly. And Billy's aware of the talent, but he's also aware that his skin color keeps him back from truly uh, fulfilling on his talent. And yet at the same time, his talent is the only thing that equalizes him in a world of white men that are constantly telling him he's not equal. And Jack is by far the most lost character uh, of the three of them. He really has no direction whatsoever. And he's kind of living like an animal, just uh, following his baser instincts. But the point is to say this, when Jack gets out of juvenile detention, he meets up with Denny again. And at this point, Denny has been to war. I think Denny was in Korea, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I uh, believe the, it was Korean, the war. Korean War. Yeah. And Denny's spirit is completely uh, destroyed. He's an alcoholic, he's a small time grifter. And the sort of the brightness of his life, uh, whatever was inside of him, the, the sort of youthful naivete that that made him more light and uh, and more innocent and, and more joyful is gone. Uh, and it's interesting because now Denny is making backwards progress as where we've already said in this book, Jack is constantly and incrementally making forward progress. He's even making some forward progress when he gets out of juvenile detention. But the problem is, and we're going to get back in a little bit to the plot here because it's important going forward. He links up with Denny, who at this point is really just no good. And Denny's got like these two girls that they're going to like party with and screw and all this stuff. And through a real series of unfortunate events, uh, it turns out that Denny has kind of set Jack up in a weird way. These girls are underage. Uh, 
Jack is picked up again by the police where he is falsely charged with a host of crimes like that he kidnapped one of these girls and raped them and all these crimes he didn't do. But one of the crimes he did do is technically a statutory rape because the girls were underage and he didn't know it. And he's tricked by his by the by the prosecutor into saying if he cops to these other crimes, he'll get off light and he won't actually have to face the one crime he's guilty of, which is statutory rape. So he's still not smart enough to look out for his own best interests, and he does it. And then the judge who is handling his case basically doesn't honor the deal that Jack has made with the prosecutor and sends him right back to jail. And while he's in jail, and this is the real major turning point of Jack's life. He turns out to uh, share a a cell with Billy, who he hasn't seen in many years. And Billy's now in there because he was forging checks. But the really interesting thing about this book, Sean, and it confused me for a little bit, is the book jumps back and forth in time. So he sees Billy, you know, he meets Billy in jail. And then all of a sudden, one chapter later, without any context, without any, like, dream sequence sound effect that a movie would give you uh they explain billy's entire backstory and what he's been doing in the years that jack was in juvenile detention it's super interesting yeah i i kind of look at it as that you get billy's story then because jack and billy are catching up and Right, but he doesn't tell you. He doesn't, no, he it doesn't just say, jumps right and then into Billy, it. Yeah, he doesn't say, and then Billy recounted his story. So in the beginning, I was super confused. I was like, wait, is Billy out of jail now? Are we flash-forwarding in time? Uh, and in fact, Sean, correct me if I'm wrong here, because this part, I really like this section of the book, but I found it confusing. Do they actually go over the part in which Billy goes to jail? Like, where he's actually convicted of the crime of forging checks right so in that flashback do they actually get to the part where he actually starts forging the checks well i think the scam was is that he was cashing in fraudulent paychecks they were small time they were like 20 bucks a piece and he was so billy at this point he actually earned enough money hustling pool to get himself into college and while he's in college, he meets the woman that he loves, and he marries and settles down. He doesn't he doesn't continue with the schooling, but she does, and they have two kids. And Billy loves them like they're the. He understands that, like buying his son a baseball glove or buying his daughter a, a new dress. He's like, this is the only path to happiness in my life, but in the end he still feels ostracized. And I think this is the, the biggest signal that even though there is uh, casual racism, the N word gets thrown around a couple of times, but you get an inner monologue about Billy thinking about his kids, knowing that he can't keep them safe forever from the, yeah. the racism, from that's prejudice. Wait- yeah. The racism waiting out there. And there's like a heartbreaking line where he's like, they're not going to tell Billy when somebody at school or somebody on the street, you know, comes at him with the derogatory term, but Billy's going to be able to see it on their face. And I think he kind of, that kicks him back into his wanderlust hustling days because he still plays pool occasionally. But on this last trip, he's out for, I think it's like a month. Uh, He's sending money back home to his family, but he's, He's lost a step as far as the pool game goes. So he, he's 
finally gives in and cashes one of these fraudulent checks and the cops pick him up for it at the pool hall and then what they do is they dump like 50 more charges on him and Billy yeah. claims he only did it one time but because of the color of his skin the the system dumps on all these fake charges on Billy Right, so I want to talk about this sequence a little bit, um, this entire flashback, because it's a long portion of the book in which it's recounting Billy's life from after he met Jack uh, on the outside to when he eventually goes back to prison. And one interesting thing, right, is that Billy's making the most out of his life in his circumstances, and his circumstances, quite frankly, are just being black in America. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he's got this talent. He's going to college. He's not doing great at college. He marries a woman, he has children, and yet the thing is that he's dissatisfied. He's not happy. He knows these things should make him happy, but they don't. And I think what Billy's, you know, one thing that the author, I mean, is really kind of astounding is how deep he goes psychologically into these characters. Mm -hmm. And what Billy's looking for is the ultimate moment of triumph. Uh, sort of the moment when when all things are equal, he is the greatest, when he has overcome his entire situation in America, which is just being born black. And that and that manifests itself in this like 24-hour um, pool competition he has against this other pool hustler who's this fat, white, racist guy. And, you know, Billy, he's got this wad of cash that he's won from playing pool over the years— and he's very protective of it. He knows that it's his children's future. Uh, you know, it, it's the bedrock of essentially his adult life is this wad of cash. And yet he can't help himself. And once again, this this book's a large part about not being able to help yourself. But he can't help himself from saying that he's going to put it all on the line to defeat this other pool hustler who's about as good as he is in an ultimate contest of who's the best because he's never given these opportunities. He's never given the opportunity to fight fairly in a situation like this. Um, So as a result, he puts it all on the line. He plays for like 24 hours against this other pool hustler and he actually loses all his money. Mm -hmm. He loses all of it. And it's kind of signifying, once again, the author's view you can't beat society and you shouldn't even uh, go out and try. I mean, this is what he wants. He wants this moment of unparalleled victory, but he doesn't get it. And they suggest it's the loss of that money, which is actually what leads him to start forging the checks. Yeah, I, I kind of blanked on that. But yeah, at that point, Billy, I think he's working at the wife's father's bowling alley and he's kind of like the manager. And he turns mm-hmm. it into a success because he runs it all night and he put pool tables in. So he you yeah. know, plays against the clientele. And yeah, he suffers defeat against this other traveling pool shark. And he just kind of solemnly slips out. He just takes his pool cue and leaves at like five in the morning. And that's, I forgot that that's actually what sent him back on the road. But yeah, yeah. But Billy's fascinating because up to this point, too, he was happy with his wife. But around this time, he gets a mistress. And the mistress is the exact opposite of Billy's wife in almost every way. Because I think it's described that Billy's like only like an eighth black. So he's like he's... Is that true? No, I thought he was totally black. No, because the, 
the way it's written is like the only things that he has it's like he's got like the darker skin but he's got like curly hair and his wife's the same way and when he goes and finds a mistress he thinks he's going to get somebody like his wife but he gets like the foulest wood like half prostitute he can find that's right and he just kind of wallows in his filth so that relationship is kind of telling because it's like that's what he deserves and subconsciously yeah. that's what he's putting on himself he doesn't deserve the nice house and the kids and the wife because he doesn't feel connected to the society around him and that yeah. kind of defeats him yeah you know it's just it's just really interesting that the author he's got such a clear vision on what drives people and the fact that he was able to reach that deep down into a character like billy and suggest that even when billy is achieving all the uh, all the things that society says you should have, which is a family, a wife, a job, a talent, none of it is good enough because he's not achieving it on his own terms. He's achieving it always at a compromise. Mm-hmm. So he sees this this competition with this guy as a chance to really succeed on his own terms when everything is equal and his race doesn't matter. And when he doesn't win, it's heartbreaking. I mean, it really is. And I think, you know, this is what should lead us now into the next portion of the book, which is in some ways the most important portion. Uh, And also really uh, takes us a real left turn I was not expecting. I'm going to be honest with you, Sean. In fact, I was going to text you and just say, hey, man, this book got real gay. Uh, (laughs) And and basically, uh, Jack and Billy become lovers in the cell. Uh, in you know, they're sharing the room and sort of it starts off where they're like, look, we're both just horny. We have no, f- they, they, they literally tell each other, like, let's just have sex, no feelings involved, right? This mm-hmm. is just because we're in here and we need to have sex and we know each other, right? But, you know, nothing intimate whatsoever. It's funny, they're, they're much more willing to actually have anal sex, I presume, rather than be intimate with their feelings. I mean, that just goes to show you something about men and these characters. Yeah. Uh, so they start having sex, but then the truth is they fall in love. And what's really interesting is that Billy's, um, Billy's, you could call it his emotional, um, his emotional uh, uh, epiphany comes at the realization that he's in love with Jack. And Billy makes his major step forward in life when he admits to Jack in their cell after they've been lovers for a little while that it's more than just sex for him, that he actually loves him. And even though Jack knows inside that he does love Billy, he can't tell him. Because to actually tell him that is somehow more revealing and more embarrassing to him than uh, having gay sex with Billy, which is a surprise to me. But hey, you know... psychologically i guess it makes sense um and but what's funny is about characters taking one step forward and two steps back and i'm going to spoil something here guys but i you know this is going to be a book of spoilers um when billy finds out that there is a gang leader within the prison who's planning on raping jack uh billy can't take it uh and he decides to basic to kill this gang leader uh, to defend Jack and to defend his honor, almost like you would your wife if you found out you're, that some guy was planning on raping your wife. And he goes to kill the guy in the yard. He, I think he uh, he takes like a spoon and he sharpens it down mm-hmm. and he stabs the guy. But unfortunately for him, the guy's also got a knife on him yeah. and he stabs Billy and they both die in the yard. 
And once Billy's dead, it's only then can Jack really come to the realization that he loved Billy. And this is a huge moment in Jack's life because to love anyone other than himself is a huge deal. Uh, and it's the major step forward in Jack's emotional development. Oh, yeah. this It's, it's almost crucial. This is the first time somebody that has actually shown Jack true love and uh, via a sacrifice. Um, and it's, it's, it causes Jack to cry for the first time in his like yep. remembered life. Mm-hmm. And it really does. That's exactly where the novel turns. It it's Jack finally knows what it's like to, you know, be loved and to love. And it, it, it kind of sucks that I'd go at the, the sacrifice of the character Billy, but there was no way around it. Like Billy had to kind of die to, to prove that of his love for Jack. And when Jack gets out, he starts, he starts making an effort basically, you know, to keep a job. And, um, he fought, like, I guess we go into where the next part goes with Sally. Well, I, yeah, I just want to end on one thing about Billy. Billy in some ways has the saddest fate because he is the one who probably could have accomplished the most had he just been born white. He's so talented, he's so smart, um, he's so open, but just him being black sets him so many steps back in America, and it kind of feels like, honestly, there was no other result uh, possible for him in this book. So his his thing is super tragic because he is the most he is the most potential of any of the main characters in the book, but he is also in many ways the largest victim of society. You know, Jack is a victim of the penal system. He's the product of being unloved as a child. Uh, but he's still in many ways, he doesn't have the potential that Billy had. Mm -hmm. He has some of it, but not in, but not in in its entirety. And in many ways, when he, when he falls in love with Billy and he's, and he sees sort of what a beautiful spirit Billy is and the tragic uh, end Billy met, he kind of vows to do something better with his life. But unfortunately, that's not how this book works. This book doesn't just say character decides to do something better with their lives and then does. Mm -hmm. So he gets out of prison and he's working a sort of dead-end job in a bakery from which he is fired because this rich, well, you want to call her a hussy, a socialite? I don't know what to call her, but she basically picks a fight with Jack on purpose and then she gets him fired. And in a weird... uh, bizarre set of circumstances eventually becomes his lover and the question is is she good for jack or bad for jack uh because what happens is they get he gets married to her um and it completely sets forward the next uh step in his life which is trying to be a married man and a family man to a woman who in many ways is not only more limited than Jack, but also less willing or interested in growing. Because Jack is interested in growing and developing as a person. He's just fighting so hard against his nature constantly in the book. But his wife, Sally, is kind of the opposite. She likes where she is, and she has no interest in maturing or going any further. And the notion that she even has to do that uh, she resents, and it causes her to take many steps backwards. Yeah, I think Sally's a, a fascinating character. She starts off uh, in college. I think she's like a, a small-time play actress, or she's just putting on a play, 
And that's where she meets her first husband who under her guidance, she kind of gets him into Hollywood and makes him yeah. a big star. It's not like there's never a name given, but you can make a guess of like which 60s movie star that the character's based off of. Yeah. But when they get to Hollywood, she loses all agency over him because now she's just his wife. She's no longer Sally, the person that got him to this point. She's just another Hollywood wife. So that's why she leaves him and moves to San Francisco where she meets Jack, where because now she's the wife of a famous guy in San Francisco, that still counts for something. So she is basically just hanging around with this uh, group of socialites, uh, the leader of which is like an older man named uh, Myron Branson or Bronson? Bronson. Bronson. And uh, he basically sums up their lives where it's just these spoiled rich people. They get drunk every night, get into fights, and then forget why they were fighting in the morning. And they just, it's a cycle. They just do it all over again. So uh, when Sally sees Jack working at the bakery and she, she does, she gets one of her friends uh, who's like an insolent, touchy guy kind of person to like throw a punch at Jack. And of course, Jack immediately manhandles him and yeah. causes him to lose his job. But she invites him over to her apartment because she says she can find him work. And it's all a ruse. She, it's like she sees Jack as like a piece of meat. And that's all that he is to her. She does. Yeah. yeah she does try to like culture him up a bit. Like, well, this is important, though. This is important. In some ways, Jack, um, he makes the most progress in terms of his profile as a character. And what I mean by that is that most people see Jack and they just see some street tough who can't, you know, have an intelligent discourse on anything. And one interesting thing about Sally is you said that she left her first husband, the actor, because she no longer had any agency over him once he got successful. But that's not really true. Sally fell in love with him because in college she saw him in a theater and she said, this guy has a true talent. Like he's a real artist. And when he started becoming successful in Hollywood, it was because he was taking stupid roles, like, you know, roles like the sheriff killing Indians or like trying to find his lost dog. Like really, you know non-artistic parts and in, and she despises the fact that he would sell his talent and his artistry in this way and one thing about sally is that she really is a connoisseur of art she knows literature and opera and theater and movies and she actually opens jack up to all these different uh these these different forms of content and art and jack starts reading like a madman he starts he starts reading uh Russian literature mm -hmm. and all sorts of stuff to the point where he can really have intelligent conversations on it. And in fact, Sean, this is the part of the book and I should have known better where I thought it was going to be, Oh, Jack's going to become an author and write his life story. And this is it, mm. but I should have known better because this is not that kind of book. No. Uh, but I think in like 9.5 novels and movies, uh, out of 10, that is what happens yeah. in this kind of story, right? Where Street Tough becomes a reader and then eventually becomes a brilliant author. And I think Jack probably did have it in him to become an author. But once again, this is not a book where people pull themselves up by their bootstraps and completely change their station in life. So what ends up happening is that Jack becomes... 
Jack starts maturing exponentially at a rapid rate that is far outpacing Sally's ability to mature herself. And as a result, it really starts to cause resentment amongst her and him towards her because as the more mature he gets, the more it causes her to react and become even more immature and to become a drunk. Eventually, she has Jack's child, which he really wants because he's on this path of self-discovery and maturation. And he, and he comes to this conclusion that the world has no institutions and that the only institution is parenting, right? Mm-hmm. That if you want to have a better world, he literally says, if every single parent on the planet just raised a good kid and we let all the bad people die off, then the world would just be full of good people. And this is an incredibly like profound insight because that's the truth. The only way people are raised and become who they are is through parenting. And unfortunately, Sally is just not catching up with him. So the, the the better of a father he becomes, the worse of a mother she becomes. And unfortunately, this book ends. I kept waiting for there to be a happy ending in this book. And in fact, it just ends on an incredibly tragic note. Uh, Sean, do you want to get into it? Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> so Sally is basically the most unfit mother. And it's like she's starting to feel more and more trapped because Jack's working a job as a uh, valet driver at night for a nightclub. So he's making about 70 bucks a week in 60s dollars, which is barely enough money to keep you know the lights on and, and food on the table. But Sally still misses her old life of going out and you know partying and all this. Mm-hmm. So Jack tries to make concessions. like he asks for another night off and tries to work for the day shift, but Sally becomes increasingly immature and starts like leaving uh, the baby, the son, he names him Billy. She starts going to parties and leaving Billy unattended. At the beginning, she hires like a babysitter, but Jack's furious at like coming home and seeing that there's a babysitter and not Sally. Because in Jack's mind, like Sally's the only one that can take care of the baby, I suppose. She's just not being a mother. Yeah. She's basically yeah. rejecting the idea of motherhood, whereas Jack yeah. has fully embraced fatherhood. And so uh, Sally basically has like a drunk tryst one night and calls Jack on the phone and tells him about it. And Jack kicks her out of the house. And I don't know if I'm jumping ahead, but Jack basically realizes he can't provide for Billy, but Myron... No, 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 no. So you're you're getting confused here. Well, for starters, Jack kicks her out of the house when he she's actually left Jack. She's like, or no, sorry, excuse me. He kicks her out of the house when on this drunken night out where she calls him, he's come back to the house to realize that this time she's left the baby alone. There actually is no babysitter. And he says in that, and they say in that moment, the other describes, he loses all love for her, that it's completely gone. And he just makes the decision that she has to go. So he packs up her stuff and he kicks her out of the house. But what happens is that she goes to, uh, what was his name? Myron Bronson. Myron Bronson, and she, and she, he, she basically leaves Jack for Myron, even though Jack has kicked her out, and she's going to end up marrying Myron. Now, Myron is this weird character in the book. He's filthy rich. He has this tertiary relationship to Jack and Sally, but it turns out it's because he's always been in love with Sally. Now, Myron's a smart guy and and somewhat of a kind guy, um, but he calls Jack up one day, and he's like, look, uh, Sally and I were getting married, and in fact, he doesn't call her. What happens is Sally 
tells Jack, she comes to the house and she's like, even though you kicked me out, I'm marrying Myron and I'm suing for full custody of the child. And Jack's like staggered because this is his kid and he never thought that she was going to like sue for full custody. And Myron has a drink with Jack at the bar and he tells Jack that he loves Sally. He always has that. He loves uh, Jack's son who he's named Billy and he wants to adopt Billy. And then in fact, he's going to be able to adopt Billy. There's very little Jack can do and he's not going to pay Jack for Billy either. And Jack comes to the realization that there's nothing he can do. And he rationalizes to himself that his son Billy is likely better off with Myron because he'll grow up rich and in luxury. And he, and he, he says to himself, you know, that he was never really fit to do anything except drink and fight, that this is just once Mm -hmm. again, his station in life. And I want to wrap up this book so that we can start talking about some of the things about the book. But what happens is after that scene in the bar and it literally ends with Jack sipping a fine whiskey that another man bought him, you don't get any more of Jack in the novel. And the epilogue in the book is it's a few years in the future. Uh, Myron, Sally, and the son Billy are all now living, I believe, in France. Yeah. And Myron is completely sick of Sally. And he's trying to leave, he's trying to think of ways to ditch her but also get full custody of Billy because uh, he does love Billy. But one really important thing he mentions is that he believes Billy doesn't love anyone except for his governess. So like his high class French babysitter, which means including himself, that Billy doesn't have any love for any of them except for the babysitter. And the book ends with Myron just trying to figure out how to leave Sally. Like that's just how it ends. And by the way, Sally at this point is just a complete drunk floozy sleeping with other men. I mean, she's just well, she's she back sucks. With, she's back with the first husband. Yeah, she just sucks, and Myron realizes it now. The book doesn't end on some great, like, you know, um, ceremony or anything. There's no enormous scene to end this book. It's just Myron quietly contemplating uh, how is he going to leave Sally. Uh, But here's my point, right? Is Billy better off with Myron? Or is he actually following the same path Jack followed, which is being an unloved child? Because this is what I think in the book. I think that Billy would have been better off with Jack because Jack would have truly loved him and been there for him. And the sense you get with Myron is that Myron is paying someone else to raise Billy. So at least Billy is loved by somebody, which is this French babysitter, who, by the way, he's going to take him away from. They're going to move back to America. So this babysitter, unless she moves with them, but he even says he's going to miss her, but oh, well, he'll be fine. And the sense I get what this entire book is about is about being unloved, whether it's unloved from society or your parents or from your partner. It's about people's emotional limitations when they're not loved by one another. Yeah, I I think you can make a strong case. And also what people's goals are that they have for themselves and what they want mm-hmm. and their, their attempts, be they failures or successes in getting them. Uh, I think By- or Myron states that what he really wants from Billy is that he does love Billy, but he just wants an heir, like somebody that he can raise in his way. So that's why he took him to France. And I think it's said that Billy knows more French than English at this point. But Myron yeah. also wants to raise him as American. And I think it's hinted that Myron is also debating whether or not 
he's going to reintroduce Billy to Jack at some point in the future and try to yeah, show him hopes, not to be ashamed of him. Yeah, he hopes that, that Billy will neither um, despise or pity Jack. That's his yeah. exact wording. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just really interesting because the sense I get is that young Billy is going to grow up emotionally damaged, but once again, incrementally better than his father did, right? A lot of this is just about incremental progress that people make and entire generations make. Um, one thing I love about this book, and I just really want to point out, is you know how I said in a normal 9.5 out of 10 times in a movie or story, once Jack starts reading Russian literature and, you know, like, you know, wading in the ocean and coming to great emotional epiphanies that that character is going to become a famous author. Something I love about this book and the author is that the author is completely rejecting sentimental bullshit like that. Yeah. He is so hyper intelligent. He has no patience whatsoever for the artifice of narrative. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? He is, this is not escapist literature in the least. This is literature that is meant to say, this is what life is like. And let's analyze it in it, its realest, most uncompromised state. I mean, can you imagine this author trying to make small talk at a dinner party? It must be impossible for him. Right. Um, if you looked up uh, more about Carpenter, he eventually has to, because none of his books were successes. The critics loved him, but eventually he had to go start working for Hollywood, basically doing everything that oh, he God. hated. Oh, no. He's actually a really tragic figure. Um the reason I found Don Carpenter was because uh, another author I really like named Brodigan was his best friend, and Brodigan committed suicide, and it had an effect on Carpenter. And then mm -hmm. Carpenter, later on in life, his health started failing him, and he hated what he was doing, so he ends up killing himself. So these people are like, <laughs> Carpenter's writing from a very realistic uh, place, I think, in his mind. And what he excels at is he grabs the reader and he pulls you down on like the level of like, I guess, griminess or savageness of the book. And he's just completely honest with you. Like all the cards are out on the table. This to me is, um, the play that Barton Fink was trying to write in my head. Like, interesting. Like his, this is the great yeah. American realistic, gritty, you know, uh, the novel. working man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the nobility of the working man. But what's interesting is that, you know, I was wondering about this, Sean, when I was reading this book. I was like, is he finding the dignity in these people? Or is he actually showing, is he doing the antithesis of that, the opposite? Is he actually showing the undignified nature of their lives and that the only thing dignified about it is the striving for dignity? Like, these guys are stuck in the mud and only the attempt to claw themselves out of it is the part that's dignified, but they still never get out of the mud. You know, it's to me, this is not the play that Barton Fink would have written. I think because Barton Fink would have given his character, I mean, he wrote the movie. Barton Fink wrote, you know, the great wrestler's movie. And in fact, the, the producer of the movie says, you know, I hired you to write a wrestling picture. Instead, you give me a man wrestling with his soul. <laughs> you know, he's furious. <laughs> Uh, but the author, yeah, I mean, maybe Barton Fink would have written this. I, I do hear what you're saying, but it's so uncompromising. I'm not sure he's trying to say, here is the the true nobility of the average person. I think, if anything, he's trying to say, look how people live. It is savage. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's what it's the, the strongest selling point of the book is that these people, did he, 
it's not like they're leaving like totally uh, miserable lives. There are mm-hmm. glimmers of hope, happiness, real personal growth, but everything else around them, even the other people in their lives, seemingly are always just beating, you know, beating back against them. It's it's kind of like the classic or traditional American novel where they're like big moral things where you know the guy falls in love with the woman and gets her gets her uh, pregnant and then has to whack her over the head with an oar in the middle of a lake and get rid of her yeah and it but it's right. always condemning him i think there's an ambivalence in the writing of this where we're not supposed to pass judgment because any of these characters could be any one of us we're all in the same boat as these characters these could be very real people well let me ask you a question the end of the book uh, Jack's last chapter, right? He's lost everything and he's drinking a glass of fine whiskey, uh, which by the way, in the beginning of the book is all he ever wanted was just like good booze. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think at this point from here on out, Jack gives up that Jack no longer strives uh, to better his life? I would think that he continues kind of like right where he's at, you know, uh, working as the valet, reading his books. I don't know how a character like Jack could change. If he hasn't changed by this point, I think if anything, yeah. he'll know to stay away from, you know, fast-moving women. Uh, it, it's kind of hard to picture a future for Jack that isn't anything but mediocre, kind of. Yeah, just... this, this, is a, this is a smart soul dying in complete anonymity. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know what I mean? Like... He'll never, he'll never fulfill any potential. And the best that, you know, it, it's nice that we know about Jack, right? That we mm-hmm. know about this person as the audience, because in real life, nobody's going to. No one's, this guy's probably going to die in a motel room with some booze around him, but we'll have never known the internal life that this person led. Uh, Sean, do you have any final thoughts on this book before we start casting it? Well, I think if we circle back around when we, we were talking about what kind of book is this. I honestly yeah. think it's a tragedy. It's just, yeah. it's just being born unloved and anonymous and dying potentially unloved and anonymous. And the pattern, I think it's like constantly said that Jack is like, why was he born? Why was he put onto this earth? It Like he didn't choose to be on this earth. And instead he's got this whole life of pain and suffering. And yet, he still repeats the process by having a son and the son is in many ways, if you take out the money factor and Myron taking care of him, Billy's like in the exact same boat as Jack was. And I think one of the harshest parts of this book is I think at one point Sally threatens to is like Sally's constantly disappearing. Even before she gets into fights with Jack, she just leaves him and like goes and visits her parents or something. And at one point when she's about to have Billy, they have a fight and she leaves and she talks to him, I think on the phone and says, no, she leaves a message with uh, Myron. And it's like a note on a piece of paper and it says, "I'm, I'm going to have this baby and I'm immediately putting in an orphanage, knowing exactly that's what happened to Jack and that's what would anger him the most. She doesn't mean it, but she knows... Jack swears to kill her. Yeah. And he means it resolutely. He tells Myron, he goes, if she does that, just let her know, I will kill her. Yeah. Like, it's not... That's not an empty threat. Yeah, and it's like... 
these people know each other. They do have a connection because they know exactly what to say to yeah, what drive the to other push. person. Yeah, absolutely crazy. Um, Let's cast it, Sean. Let's cast the book. Okay. Uh, do you have any suggestions to start off? I do. Okay. So let's start with Jack. I think the choice here is obvious. Um, that being said, this person is too old to play them now. So I'm going to go a younger version of this person. Okay. I think Tom Hardy, young Tom Hardy, is obviously the choice to play Jack. I can't even think of anyone who could do it better than young Tom Hardy. You know, cast Tom Hardy around the age of 20, let him play young to begin with so he can play older later. Uh, that's who I'm going for Jack. Hmm, that's that's probably a good one. I don't think I can see anybody else other than that. I think you would have to find, like, a talented nobody because that's what Jack essentially is, like, or a talented actor nobody. And, like, I think by putting somebody that's a well-known actor as Jack might kind of uh, set an expectation for audiences when they're watching this. They're like, oh, well, this has to have a happy ending. I know that guy. He he was in yeah. his movies or whatever. The problem is there are very few uh really good actors who are also tough guys, like legitimate tough guys. Tom Hardy is one of the only ones, right? You right. know what I mean? Like in some ways, the character he played in The Drop, which by the way, if you haven't seen that movie, see it, is similar to the Jack character. Sean, have you seen The Drop? No, I haven't. Oh, dude, see that movie. In fact, that was uh, James Gandolfini's last movie. So another Sopranos callback here. Um, so for the character of Denny, I have... um. I think his name is Domino Gleason. He's the redheaded kid from uh from Star Wars, the evil one, like the guy who is like uh who is the rival of um of what's his name? Uh Kylo Ren. Do you know who I'm talking about? Uh no, I've only seen the the first new Star Wars. Yeah, he he's in that one. He's he's the red he's the imperial guy. He's like the second oh, in command. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's also in the movie you. about time. He's also in that great movie with Oscar Isaac about uh, about artificial intelligence. Uh, what is that called? You know what I'm talking about? Where it's like the robot and they're trying yeah. to determine it's isn't like it, this feet with isn't it just like AI. Alicia, yeah, no, no, the movie's not called AI. It's the it's the movie with Alicia Vikander and uh, Oscar Isaac and that and that actor Domino Gleason, where they're like in this like private house and there's this robot, this female robot, and they're trying to determine. Yeah, if no, she's, I know, I know what you you're know. talking about. I, I literally am blanking on it. And I've seen the movie like three or four well, times. So that guy, I think that guy could play Denny because you need a Weasley, squirrely Irish guy. Like I think I thought about young Colin Farrell, but I think he's too tough. Even though he's sensitive, I think he's too tough. Who would you go for? for Denny um for Denny uh <laughs> I don't know why but uh is it Donnie Bonaducci if a young Donnie Bonaducci from the Partridge yeah. family <laughs> are you serious that's before the, that's he got the, jacked up yeah that's the face that I put to Denny just that like little that's hilarious easily Irish kid also I think if I had a time machine and I'm casting Bonaducci I would put Mickey Rourke as Jack I guess I could see that yeah Mickey Rourke could definitely do Jack uh, I 100% agree what about Billy uh, Billy, I think it would be um, the Wire. What's the badass guy's name? That the stick-up artist. Uh, Omar. Damn, that's good. Yep, the guy who plays Omar. Yeah, either Omar or even his lover on the Wire. No, I think I think the guy who played. I think you nailed it with that one. Uh, that's a good one. I imagined somebody smaller. Um, you know who I actually kept imagining, and it's gonna sound weird. Have you seen um? American History X. Yeah. 
Remember the black guy in prison that basically teaches Edward Norton that black people aren't all bad, right? Oh, yeah, that guy. Okay. I kept imagining him because I kept imagining Billy as small. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was kind of looked like thought of him as like wiry. Like he's yeah, he's got to like, have like long arms and long fingers if he's a good pull pull shooter, right? Yeah, and he's also got to be like chatty. He's got to be talkative. He's not the silent type like Billy. Yeah. So cause... just that character from uh, that character from American History X, whoever that actor was, that's who I kept pl- thinking of it. And it, I think it's pretty obvious because that movie there cellmates, right? A white guy and a black guy, and the black guy's teaching the white guy about life, and that's very much what happens in this book as well. So it's it's not a coincidence that I thought of that guy. Uh, what about Sally? Uh, Sally, this is gonna seem like a weird one, but the daughter from Veep. Oh, interesting. I know exactly who you're talking about. She was in something else recently that I was watching. I can't remember what it, it was. was. The, the uh, kid detective. She was the secretary. That's right. That's right. She was the secretary and the kid detective. All right. So for me, I chose Aubrey Plaza. Yeah. Nope. That definitely. That definitely tracks. It's just got to be someone who can be a real fucking jerk. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, really, like, a, a type of intelligence and bravery, like a courageousness in shunning social norms, but also an ability to cut you down really sharply. Right, with even just, like, a look. Yeah. And what about Myron? Finally, what about Myron Bronson? I didn't actually really think of who to, like, cast him out, because I think he's, like, like, a tertiary character, but he does have a big role in the end. Um, yeah, I kind of think of it as like distinguished. I don't know why it popped in my head, but what is it? Uh, Elaine's one boss from Seinfeld. The, the that guy, guy Peterson. <laughs> yeah, no. Because if not he's not if he's not acting like like uh, with that kind of bravado, and he's just like you know very level, because he's tired of all these people around him. You got to cast somebody that's yeah. like dignified looking but weary of it. I'm trying to think of, like, a low-rent George Clooney. Okay, yeah. Like, who would a low-rent... Like, who's, who's like, the, the eighth guy you call when you can't get George Clooney? Tom Jane? Yeah, well, he's too young, too handsome. To me, this guy has to be actually, like, significantly older. Like, you know who I'm going with? Hmm. I'm going with Richard Schiff from, from the West Wing. Do you know who that is? Mm, not tracking off the top of my head. He played Toby on the West Wing. When you Google him, you'll see who I'm talking about. I'm going like significantly older here and just like schlumpier, like a guy who has none of the manly qualities that Jack has. Um, Yeah, that's why I'm, I'm going with Richard Schiff here. I think he could do it. Sean, any final thoughts on this book? Um, No, I think we, we did a pretty good job recapping everything. Um, It's one of those books that, you do have to read it to experience it. Uh, yeah. It's just, it's such a small self-contained story that asks such big questions and literally doesn't have an answer for it. So don't pick it up and start reading it if you want something light and, you know, carefree. Uh, this is something that, you know, it's going to stay with you for a little while and it's going to make you uncomfortable. But I think it's, everybody needs a little bit of that every now and again just to stay sane. Here's what I want to say. I want to say this is one of the great novels. Oh, it yeah. really is. You're rarely going to get this kind of clarity in any type of content that you consume in life. It is so un- uncompromising. It is so intelligent. It has such a good grasp on people and psychology. And such a, it, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Eugene O'Neill. If mm-hmm. you've ever read or seen The Iceman Cometh specifically, because I think, you know, people love, um, 
long day's journey tonight. But I think the Iceman cometh is is the play that really asks the bigger questions, which is if life turns out, if, if the end of your life turns into a void of nothingness, of death, then why do we even continue, right? Mm-hmm. The book is saying, or the play is saying that there is no heaven, that there's no afterlife, and when you die, that's it. It's not questioning that. The question is, how do you continue in the face of that? That is such an enormous question. Yeah. It is so precise. It is so deep. It is so uncompromising. It is so terrifying, and it is so intelligent and important, and that's the way I look at this book. I mean, I really do think this author... I don't know if Eugene O'Neill was his favorite playwright. I wouldn't be surprised if he were because there's so many similarities in the unco- in the ability that they have to look into the void uncompromisingly and to make you look into it too. Um, I'm going to read this book again, in fact, because the next time I read it, I won't have to be worrying about what happens next and I will really be able to savor the insight on every page. Yeah, and it's, and it's, it's dark and introspective without being maudlin or you know trying to be edgy and be like totally like nihilism and everything is the only answer um yeah and yet and also like the side crime stuff that does happen the the grittier you know mm-hmm. when jack's shacked up with the the underage girls and everything uh did your i know you read your uh, books on audio but did yours have the introduction no by george pelicanos yeah i think that's no it's that's it so said fitting. it did when i it said it did when I bought it, and I couldn't find it, which is the weird thing. It was like, Introduction by George Pelicanos, and then it wasn't in my book, yeah. so I don't know. I think The Wire is kind of this book's spiritual successor. You know, just Makes total sense. Yeah, and I can see why Pelicanos has chosen. Because in The Wire, nobody defeats the system. Yeah. Nobody defeats this. The, the system remains undefeated in The Wire, and the system remains undefeated in this book. Sean, I'm really glad that you recommended this one. It far exce- it far exceeded my expectations in the first third of the book, and I don't think the first third of the book is bad. It's one of these things where when I go back and read it, reread it, I'm sure it's going to blow me away, the parts that didn't blow me away in the beginning, because I don't think I understood what I was getting in for. Yeah, I, I really do believe that this book needs to be up there with like the Steinbecks and Hemingways as far as great American literature goes. And to have it not like you say like, Oh, Hey, did you ever read hard rain falling? And people are just blankly look at you and be like, yeah, it's kind of like the best book in that time period. (laughs) So this is a true hidden gem. Yeah. This is a hidden gem. All right, Sean, this was a great one. Yeah, man. It was good talking to you. All right. Until next time, Sam. And thank you everybody for listening. Yep. And hey, guys, if you like this, please rate and review us on iTunes. That really goes a long way towards uh, helping us pay our rent. Until next time. Later. Uh,